Good morning, Grace Community Church. I want to remind us that we have very good news this morning. Very good news. Jesus, right now, is reigning at the right hand of God. And he's promised to use all of his power for our good, to strengthen us. And this promise is good even today, that his goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life. And so we can trust him. We can trust him even now as we come to the preaching of his word. That he's going to meet with his people. And I encourage you now as we pray to ask the Lord to feed your soul today. Ask him to feed your soul. Let's pray together. Father, we come today in Jesus' name. Our Savior. The one who demonstrated his love for us while we were enemies. And Lord, we confess today that we live in a world that constantly pulls us away from the things of heaven, from the things of eternity, from the things that matter. And we need your help, Lord. And you command us in your word to remember, to remember your grace, to remember your steadfast love. And you've even given us this gift today of the Lord's Supper and, and you called us to remember the death of Christ and a free pardon and a full forgiveness. And Lord, we ask for your help today. Help us to remember Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our souls today through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. We're going to begin by reading God's word together. Now I want to remind us of the simplicity of what we're about to do. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul tells Timothy to do three things. To devote himself to the public reading of Scripture. We're about to do that. Timothy is then to devote himself to teaching the Word of God. We're about to do that. And then he tells Timothy to exhort the people of God with the Word. Give yourself to the public reading of Scripture, the teaching of and the exhortation, 1 Timothy 4.13. And I want you to understand the simplicity of this. We're going to read the word of God. We're going to seek to understand what it says. And then disciples of Jesus all around the room are listening with this intent to obey Jesus. To respond to worship him. And so let's read God's word with that heart this morning. Matthew chapter 8. Beginning in verse 18. This is the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. This is God's word to Grace Community Church. 
this morning. We've asked for God's help to understand it and to respond to it. Let me make just a few words about the context of our passage this morning. Jesus has finished in Matthew's gospel. He's finished the Sermon on the Mount. And then in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus begins all these miracle narratives. He's showing his authority and his power over sickness, over demons. So we have all these miracles. And what do you know? Crowds start gathering around Jesus. They've never seen anything like it. They've never heard a man speak like Jesus speaks. The power of God, the anointing of the Holy Spirit is resting upon Jesus Christ. And crowds begin to gather around him. And in this passage, we learn some things about Jesus. Just right off the bat, we learn that Jesus Christ is not content with merely, you know, large numbers of people following him around in Galilee. That's not what he's about. And we know that because Jesus turns to these crowds, those who are followers, who are gathered around, and he calls them to a more radical commitment, a more radical allegiance. And that's the very thing you don't do. If all you care about is building your attendance and building your numbers, you don't call for more commitment, you call for less. So we, we learn some things about Jesus here. This passage is built around the commandment that Jesus gives in verse 18. He commands the crowd around him to follow him. He says in verse 18, he gave, he gave orders to go to the other side. Now, if you look down to the next paragraph in Matthew's Gospel, verse 23, you'll find that there are some who did obey him. He gives, he gives the call, he gives the commandment, and some respond. Verse 23, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. So he gives the commandment in verse 18, and some obey the commandment in verse 23. And what our passage deals with this morning is the great sifting between those two verses. Jesus Christ is sifting this crowd. He's, he's calling for a radical response. Matthew gives us two examples in our passage, passage today about inadequate responses to Jesus Christ. The first example we have is a hasty man. A man who is hasty. I'll follow you wherever you go. And then the second example we have is a hesitant man of, Lord, let me do something first. We have a hasty response and a hesitant response to Jesus Christ. And what we're going to find is Jesus responds to both of these men. And his response reveals the nature of Christian discipleship. The nature of what it means to follow Jesus as Lord. To really follow him. And that's what we want to understand this morning. At first glance, especially if your background is in a church culture where, you know, basically uh, what it means to join a church is close your eyes, bow your head, pray the prayer, and come up front. If that's what your understanding has been of what it means to become a member of the church and to follow Jesus, there's some shocking things here. I mean, just on the face of it, we see that, that, there, there, that there are some who desire to follow Jesus, and his first response is not to enlist them. 
In fact, it almost seems like he's trying to talk them out of following him. And we know he's not trying to talk them out of it. He's showing them the real call, the real demands, the real cost of Christian discipleship. He calls for real commitment. And we'll see in this passage, he calls for even total allegiance. And so that's where we're headed this morning. Verse 18, his commandment to the crowds is to go to the other side. And that means that he is referring to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He says, let's go to the other side. Go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. The other side of the sea was a region known as the Decapolis, the Ten Cities. If we keep reading in Matthew 8, the specific region that he intends to take his disciples to is found in verse 28, the area of the Gadarenes. So he calls the crowds, follow me to the other side, to the, to the Decapolis, the area of the Gadarenes. What do we know about this place? This is a, this is a Jewish audience that Jesus is referring to. It's what they grow, grew up in, the Torah. They live in Israel. They're in Galilee. And to this Jewish audience, this call to go to the other side, to the Decapolis, was a call to come with Jesus to a foreign place, to a strange place. And what we learn about this area is that this was a less Jewish area in Israel. In fact, it wasn't even ruled by King Herod. It was under Roman rule. These were Hellenistic cities, and these were, this was a Jewish place that was mixed in with Greek culture, with Hellenism, with paganism. Which is why when Jesus gets there, we find this large herd of pigs, which might not sound weird to you, but in Israel, these were unclean animals. The Jews could have nothing to do with pigs. And so you, it's a right question. You're thinking about, man, what are these doing here? No sausage plant in Israel, at least not in this time period. And so he's taking them to this mixed culture. He intends to take them to this strange and foreign place. And so this is the call. Come away with Jesus to this strange place, the Decapolis. And Matthew focuses on two responses to that command. The first is the hasty man. The man who thought that following Jesus would be easier than it actually was. And we find him in verse 19. And we are told that this man was a scribe. And he comes to Jesus and he calls him teacher. Now, if you've been paying attention or you're reading Matthew's gospel closely, this is amazing. There is a scribe who is intending to enlist as one of Jesus' disciples. And you remember how hard Jesus was on this group in the Sermon on the Mount? He blasted the scribes. Over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount, he indicted this, this group as hypocrites. They're, they, they're eat up with hypocrisy. And yet, the teaching of Jesus Christ has landed on one of these men, the scribes, and this expert in the law of Moses comes to Jesus, the, the, the Galilean Nazareth, uh, carpenter from Nazareth, and he, and he calls him teacher, which is a term of reverence. Listen, this is like a theological PhD coming before this no-name teacher of the Bible and saying, teach me, great teacher. 
The way you're handling the word of God, I realize I don't know anything. You, you're, you're the wise one. I submit to you. The scribe comes to Jesus and calls him teacher. It's amazing stuff. He expresses great initial enthusiasm. I mean, he's coming and he's saying all the right things. He says in verse 19, teacher... I will follow you wherever you go. Now that's a good thing. That's a good thing to feel and to say to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's Lord. Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. I'm there. I'm with you. But Jesus senses that something is lacking in the scribe's pledge of allegiance to Jesus Christ. He knows the hearts of all men, and he knows that that there's something lacking in these words. And so Jesus' response to the scribe, we're going to see it in just a minute, it shows us that the scribe had not thought out his commitment. You see, the words are easier to say than they are to mean. Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. You could teach a parrot to say that. The words are easy to say. Jesus indicts him. Do you really mean that? Because Jesus, Jesus is showing, I think there's something that you're missing here. Jesus tells this man in verse 20. He says, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So understand. He says, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus says, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. This is as if Jesus is saying, you sure about that? You sure about that pledge of allegiance? Are you sure you really mean what you say? In this phrase, Jesus places two things. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He places two things side by side that are truly shocking. They're surprising. Because at first glance, they're not supposed to go together. The Son of Man is supposed to have somewhere to lay his head. Jesus says, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. As you study the Gospels, one of the things you will learn is that the most common way Jesus refers to himself, not what the disciples call him or what his enemies call him, but what he calls himself, the most common self-reference title, that Jesus gives to himself is son of man. All through the Gospels. We find this background for this title comes from the Old Testament. Every time he says it, it points us backwards to the Old Testament. Most specifically, it points us backwards to the book of Daniel. We want to understand what this means, the son of man. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel reports this vision that he has from God, a vision of glory. The veil is pulled back and he beholds glory. One of the names given for God in Daniel 7 is beautiful. He's called the Ancient of Days, the uncreated God, the eternal one. 
Daniel sees him seated on the throne of heaven. The Ancient of Days seated on the throne. Daniel and Daniel 7 says all the angels are gathered around him. Thousands and ten thousands are serving him. It's a glorious vision. As Daniel beholds the glory of God in Daniel 7, he announces that he sees this mysterious figure coming down from the clouds of heaven. This mysterious figure in Daniel 7 approaches the Ancient of Days seated on his throne. And the name of this mysterious person in Daniel 7 is the Son of Man. All of heaven is gathered before the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man approaches the throne of God. And then Daniel 7 verse 14 says this, To him, the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Now think about what Daniel was saying. The dominion of God in Daniel 7 was just given to a man, the Son of Man, this mysterious figure. And not just a little bit of dominion, dominion to rule over the whole world. All nations, all peoples, and all languages are going to bow down and serve this Son of Man. This is the Messianic King. And every time Jesus uses that title in the Gospels, he's saying, I'm him. I'm the Son of Man. I'm the Daniel 7 Messiah. This is the claim of Jesus Christ, the Messianic King, destined to rule the whole world. But the surprising thing is that Jesus says this, I'm the Son of Man, and then in the very same sentence Jesus said, He has nowhere to lay his head. And this ought to leave us scratching our heads. What do you mean? What do you mean you have nowhere to lay your head? Think about it for just a moment. If all you had was the Old Testament and you were meditating on Daniel 7, the one thing that you would never think about this mysterious figure is he's going to be homeless. You never think this. You would think king of kings, lord of lords, majestic royalty, red carpet all around him, angels even serving him. You would, it would never enter into your mind that this one would be homeless. That he would be a wanderer, a sojourner. And this is the great mystery of Christ. Jesus is revealing the nature of the gospel. The son of man is here in, in lowliness. He says, Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And with these words, Jesus is teaching this scribe that things are not as they seem. The one who would rule over the whole world, he didn't even know where he was going to sleep at night. That's how uncertainty his life was. In fact, the very night that he speaks these words in Matthew 8 to this scribe, Jesus sleeps on a boat on the Sea of Galilee in the very next story. 
He says, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And the point of what Jesus is saying to this scribe is this. And it's not going to be any different for you. That's the point. It's not, as it is for Christ, so it is with his followers. It's not going to be any different for you. Don't expect any different treatment than your master. It's as though Jesus were saying, are you sure you're willing to follow me wherever I go? I'm a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Are you sure you're willing to follow me? Just a couple of pages later in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 10, 24, Jesus says this. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor is a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they malign those of his household? And so he's readjusting this scribe's expectations. It's not going to be any different for you. It's what Jesus says. Jesus' response teaches us that Christ calls his followers into a life of uncertainty, uncomfortableness, and even suffering. And some even suffering unto death for his namesake. In the days of his flesh, Jesus came, the first coming of Christ, he came in a state of humiliation and lowliness. He was subject to weakness. He was subject even to death and suffering. And those who are truly his disciples, this is its teaching, must follow him down this same path, the way of the cross. This is why when Jesus preaches the gospel... In the four Gospels, you hear this phrase over and over again. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Just as it was with Christ, cross first, crown second. So it will be with every Christian, suffering and then glory. And he's calling this man to deal with the cost of discipleship. If the first response, if we were to call it the hasty man, of saying it before you really even understand what it means, the second response was a hesitant man. We meet him in verse 21. This man is identified as a disciple. He's identified with that group of, Jesus, I'll follow you. And this disciple comes to Jesus in verse 21. And he calls Jesus Lord, which is exactly right. You are the master, and I am your servant. And then he asks what seems to be a perfectly acceptable question. He says this, let me first go and bury my father. Now this phrase has been typically understood in two different ways. See if we can understand this. Either the father of this man has just died and he's saying, hey, let me go bury my dad and then I'll come back and follow you. Or 
He's saying, my father is an elderly man. Let me care for my elderly, elderly father. And then when he dies and I bury him, then I'll follow you. And no matter which way you understand this phrase, this disciple is seeking Jesus' permission to delay the call of discipleship. Now he's either saying this, he's either asking for an immediate delay, or he's asking for an extended delay. Either way, he's asking for a delay. The immediate delay would be, let me go bury my dad real quick, and then I'll come and follow you. The extended delay would be, let me take care of my elderly father, and then, once that's done, I will follow you. Now, in a culture, unlike our culture, that highly values the fifth commandment, the fifth commandment is this, honor your father and mother. In this culture that Jesus speaks to, highly values the fifth commandment. These were good desires that this man had. The desire to take to honor your father, to honor your mother, these are good things. They're not bad things. In fact, if you don't have a desire to honor your father and mother, that's the bad thing. But again, as this man asked this, what seems to be this perfectly acceptable question, Jesus senses that something is out of order in this man's heart. Do you understand that? That good things, if they're elevated to ultimate things, become idols. And Jesus sensed it. He sized this man up. He saw inside to this man's motives and this man's intentions. You see, the problem with this man is he was hesitating about total allegiance to Jesus Christ. He was wavering. And his problem is wrapped up with that one little word in verse 21, first. First. Jesus, I heard you and I understand the commandment. But first, let me do this. And then I'll come back and I'll obey you. But the problem is nothing comes before Jesus. Jesus has already taught his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount what comes first. And he says this in Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what comes first. Nothing else comes first but God, his kingdom, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the priority. Everything else in the life of a disciple bows to this ultimate priority, the lordship of Jesus Christ. In verse 22, Jesus responds to this hesitant man and he says this, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. The word dead here is used twice in one verse, but it means two different things. The first time, Jesus is referring to the spiritually dead. The second time, Jesus is referring to the physically dead. And so understand what he's saying. He says, follow me and let the spiritually dead, the lost, bury the physically dead. And then Jesus says, but as for you, follow me. Follow me. He's calling him to allegiance 
He's calling him to right priorities. I'm first. Everything else is second. You have a contrast here between the spiritually dead and those who follow Jesus. And the implication is this. Those who are spiritually alive, what do they do? If those who are spiritually dead, if they're just worried about burying the dead and earthly things, what do the spiritually alive do? They follow Jesus. They don't put anything in front of Jesus. They follow him with utmost allegiance. There's a parallel passage in Luke's gospel. Luke tells the same story in Luke 9. Verse 57 and following. And Luke adds this phrase. Right after let the dead bury their own dead. Luke says, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom. This is the call to Jesus Christ. That our life is not wrapped up with these earthly duties. We have been called into the kingdom. To follow Jesus Christ. He's made us his ambassadors. He, he's called us into this ministry of reconciliation. There's more happening than just earthly things in the life of the Christian. He says, go and proclaim the kingdom. Everything else reorients to the priority of Jesus. And the message of the kingdom, not the other way around. It's not fit, fit him in when, you, when you're done doing all your other things. It's the other way. Everything else has to bow to Jesus. Go and proclaim the kingdom. Now if you read Matthew 8 in context, he's, he's calling this disciple to follow him. Let the dead bury their own dead. Follow me, Jesus says. And then two paragraphs later, what does Jesus do? He goes into a land of darkness and he gives eternal life to two lost sinners, two demon-possessed men. He raises them from the dead and he gives them eternal life, spiritual life. The message of the kingdom. So he's training these disciples of what it means to follow him. Calling them into this ministry of reconciliation. The glory of God and the souls of men. These are the priorities of Christians. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus' answer teaches us that nothing, no one including family, can take priority over Jesus Christ. And what a warning we have in this passage for those who love their spouse, their parents, and their children. It's, it's almost indescribable if you were to try to you know, express everything in your heart that you feel on your wedding day or when your child is born into this world. It's almost indescribable the affection that you feel for your family. And so understand, Jesus is giving this commandment to people who love their family. And so if you're hearing this today and you're like, man, this is easy stuff because I don't give a rip about my parents. That's not what Jesus is talking about. There's a real tension here. I love God and I love my spouse. I love my parents. I love my children. But my allegiance is to Jesus. Nothing can come before him. 
Family is a good gift that God has given us, but it isn't God. Your life is meant to revolve around Jesus Christ. He is Lord. That's why one of the ways you will never hear this church described, Lord willing, is family-centered. We're not. We're Christ-centered. Jesus is the center. The family is not the center. And we're, we've been told, even, even by Christian ministries, that the focus should be where? On the family. It shouldn't. The focus should be on Jesus. And a family will never be holier, happier than when the gaze is on Christ. Jesus is king. His response to this man shows us that unless we put Jesus first, we can't have him at all. What a sober warning. Unless we put him first, we cannot have him at all. Think about why Matthew has situated this call to allegiance, this call to follow Jesus in the middle of all these uh, miracle narratives. Why did he do that? Because he's showing us the nature of the one who is calling us to follow him. And this is not any ordinary man. This is Jesus, the glorious one with all power, with all authority, the master, the Lord. And so it's fitting In fact, there's no other fitting response. It's so fitting that we would leave everything and follow him with utmost allegiance because of who he is. Because of who he is. Discipleship has always been costly. There's always been a cost involved to it. We're going to read a couple of passages. If you have your Bible, leave your, maybe stick your finger in Matthew 8 and turn with me back to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings 19. We're going to read this paragraph about the call of Elisha when Elisha was called to follow the prophet Elijah. So we have Elijah, Elisha. Let's read it together. 1 Kings 19, beginning in verse 19. So he, Elijah, departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelfth. And so, there's actually more that we can learn about Elisha than meets the eye in this, in this passage. Elisha was doing just fine. If you had an ox in Israel, you were doing fine. This was a a mark of wealth in Israel. Elisha, on this particular day, is doing really well for himself. He has 12 yokes of oxen in front of him. That's 24 oxen. This is a wealthy man. And he's plowing a field. Life's going just fine. His vocation has been good to him. And then we are told that this man, Elijah, passes by. Elijah passed by him and he cast his cloak upon him. This was a symbolic act that Elijah was calling Elisha to to be his disciple, to follow him. In fact, the prophetic mantle was going to be passed down from Elijah to Elisha. But first, Elisha had to follow the prophet. 
Things are going just fine. Life has been good to this man. And then all of a sudden the prophet comes by, casts the cloak over Elijah. And Elisha knows exactly what this means. Verse 20. He left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. Sound familiar? Sound familiar? He knew that he was being called to follow the prophet. Elijah says to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? Verse 21, And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. And then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Life was going just fine. And then at the call of God, he burned it to the ground. He sacrificed everything he had. He turned away from his old life and he began to follow Elijah at the call of God. This is that radical turn, that cost of discipleship. I believe that Matthew is, is giving us a contrast in Matthew 8 of Jesus versus Elijah. You see, this great prophet shows up in Israel, and when the man says, hey, can I say goodbye to my family first, Elijah says, yes, you may. Jesus says, no, you can't. He calls his followers to a deeper allegiance than Elijah calls his followers to. Now, how could a rabbi speak this way? How could Jesus call to a deeper allegiance than Elijah? And it's all wrapped up in who Jesus is. He's God in the flesh. Nothing is held back. In fact, the very next story that we have in Matthew chapter 8 shows us the nature of Jesus Christ. This rabbi that calls, leave all and follow me and don't even you know, deal with your parents first. He, he stands up on a ship on the Sea of Galilee and he speaks to the wind and the waves, a hurricane on the ocean. And listen... The winds and the waves obey him. And everybody on the boat starts scratching their head and saying, what sort of man is this? That even the wind and the waves obey Jesus. He's the, he's the true and better Elijah. Our supreme allegiance should be with Christ. He's Lord of all. The nature of Christian discipleship, this cost, wrapped up in the lordship of Jesus, is nowhere clearer than in Luke 14. Turn there with me. Luke 14. Let's read this passage together, beginning in verse 25. Luke 14, 25, now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said, pause right there. Anybody who reads the Gospels for themselves, I mean, this shocked me the first time I read through the Gospels for myself, are the hard sayings of Jesus. I was shocked. It's almost like I've never heard this stuff before. What do you mean? One of the ways that I've heard this downplayed, and maybe you've heard it before, is that Jesus only talks this way to his inner circle. 
So you make Jesus your Savior, and then after that happens, a little while later, you make Jesus your Lord. And he only speaks this way about the cost of discipleship to that inner circle. Well, look at verse 25. This is the way Jesus speaks to crowds. This is the front door entrance into his church. Let's listen to what he says. Verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I want you to notice that Luke 14 is dealing with these same categories as Matthew 8. The family relations, the family pull. Jesus is going to say this phrase three times in Luke 14. He cannot be my disciple. And this first is an example of someone who has a divided allegiance between Christ and their family. And he says, you cannot be my disciple. In fact, if you were to compare your allegiance to Jesus to your allegiance to your family, one seems like hatred in a comparison to the other. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Verse 27 of Luke 14. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This is dealing with that same matter, that hasty man who didn't understand the cost involved with following Jesus. Jesus says if you're unwilling to bear the cross... If you're unwilling to suffer with Jesus, listen, you cannot be my disciple. So th th this presses, you know, uh, on this idea of this two-tiered Christianity of you have those who, you know, make Jesus their Savior. And then later on, those who make Jesus their Lord. And we talk about this some, but look, look, look this is to the crowds. This is front door. This is basic 101, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that there's total allegiance. That's what it means when you call him Lord. Unless this is true of you, you cannot be his disciple. That's what Jesus says. Verse 28, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock, saying, This man began to build a, a tower and was not able to finish. So he uses this construction metaphor. And he says, When you do this stuff, you count the cost. Like when you're dealing with these other areas in life, you're not flipping about it. When you build stuff, you count the cost. He continues, verse 31, Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So he uses a military example. When you do this other stuff, you count the cost. You're not flipping about this other stuff when you build stuff or when you go to war. And this is a rebuke. Why are you coming to me with less thought behind it, with this flippantness? Why? There's supposed to be this deliberateness, this swearing allegiance to Jesus Christ as king that you understand what this means. 
And so he's calling the crowds, count the cost and come to me. He says this in verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. There can be no divided allegiance. Becoming a Christian is turning away from the old. The biblical word for this is repentance. And following Jesus, the biblical word for that is faith. Turn away from the old and turn to Jesus Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. This is what it means to be a Christian. First point of application from this passage in Matthew 8. I have three. How should we respond to a passage that commands us to follow him? And this is simple. We should follow him. If, if he commands us in his word to follow him, then the application is simple. Brothers and sisters, everyone here, we should follow Jesus. But I want to try to break this down. First point of application is I want you to understand this morning that the one who makes these radical demands loves you. And that's a different thing. That's a different thing than this harsh master just domineering his subjects with no affection. That's not Jesus. I want you to understand this morning that the one who calls us to renounce all and follow him, he loves us. In fact, no one has ever loved us like Jesus has loved us. The whole reason why the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head is for us and our salvation. He, he's here, e, e, even in this state of humiliation, he's here because he loves us. He loves sinners. He became subject to weakness and homelessness because he loves us. The Apostle Paul tells, tells the Corinthian church that Jesus was rich, but he became poor so that we could become rich. That whole condescension of the highest kings to the lowest circumstances is the love of Jesus to you. He loves us. He truly loves us and he proved it at the cross. He demonstrated his love for us that while we were sinners, while we were enemies, while we were hostile to God, he died for us. And I want you to see that this morning. I want you to behold the love of Jesus. This is not a hard master like Pharaoh commanding bricks and denying straw. That's not Jesus. The one calling us after him loves us and washes us from our sins in his own blood. Jesus loves us. Second, this passage calls us to remember what we signed up for when we became Christians. And we need reminders. I don't know if you know that about yourself. If you've been a Christian for longer than probably three months. You know that you need reminders of what you signed up for. Because we live in a world, it's so easy to get comfortable here. It is so easy. It can happen just like that. Start to drift 
We have to pay much closer attention to the things that we've heard or we'll drift from the gospel. And this whole Christian life being by faith and not by sight, that's the battle. One day that battle's going to end and we're going to see Jesus and that fight's going to be over. But right now, we're fighting the fight of faith. We're in a world that, that we can see, touch, smell, and feel. We're constantly being dulled to the true world. This is shadow land that's meant to point us to the new world, the new heavens, the new earth where righteousness dwells. It's so easy to get comfortable here. And so we need to be reminded with the commands of Jesus. This is what we signed up for, brothers and sisters, to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. That's, that's the normal Christian life. It really is. Christianity 101. Counting the cost and following Jesus. Jesus calls us to uncertainty. I hope you know that. Sometimes I cringe when I hear someone lay out, you know, what do you want to do with your life? I want to do this. 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 Oh, really? What is this like prophecy or something? Like you just got it all at the, at the beginning. You know how it's all going to play out. There's so much uncertainty, which is why God's word calls us to live with this phrase in our hearts. If the Lord wills, Jesus calls us to uncertainty. He calls us to uncomfortable lives. Surely you know that. Anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is the promise. As goes it with Christ, so goes it with Christians. Jesus calls us to suffering and to join him and know him in the fellowship of his suffering. It's not supposed to feel easy. The narrow path that leads to life is supposed to feel hard. That's not all that's true about it, but that is true about it. We need to be reminded of what we signed up for. Luke's gospel says that we're supposed to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow him. I mean, that, that, that paints this picture that daily there's this death, putting to death this old, this temptation, and coming after Jesus. Reminding yourself that he's Lord. Following him. Jesus teaches us that nothing can have our ultimate allegiance besides him. Our citizenship is in heaven. This is not our home. We're not living for here and now. Our home is with Christ. Our home is in heaven. Last passage, Matthew chapter 10. I want to put this application in the sharpest focus and applying it to our families. Christians love their families. And yet we have this warning in this passage, but it better not be the ultimate. It better not. Matthew 10, verse 34, Jesus says this, Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. File that away in one of those verses where you read it for the first time. You're like, whoa, I'm not sure I've ever heard that ever before. What do you mean he didn't come to bring peace but a sword? This is the Jesus of Scripture. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. Listen to what Jesus says. For I have come to set a man against his father, 
and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And that's one of the principles of the kingdom of God that we find in the teaching of Jesus. That the one who tries to cling on to their life, I'm going to hold everything tight. I'm going to get all the things that I want in this world. I'm trying to save my life, cling to my life. Jesus says that's the one that's going to lose it. But the one who lets go, who renounces all and follows Jesus, Jesus says that's the one that gains life. Third point of application, don't forget that Jesus said, follow me. This is, this, this, this is glorious. It's true that Jesus could have said, and we should, follow righteousness, follow truth. But Jesus calls us to follow him. Jesus calls us to follow him. Brothers and sisters, this is something that we must do. But listen, we get to do this. We get to follow Jesus. And we ought to hear it like this of, of Jesus. Yeah, I heard you. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. I got it. Check. Got it. I understand it. Did you say follow you? You mean I can come after you, Lord Jesus? Me, the unworthy one, that I can have you, the worthy one of heaven, the Daniel 7 Messiah? You mean follow you? This is glorious. This is good. The gospel is good news. We get Jesus. We get Christ. Our greatest privilege in this world is knowing Jesus, walking with Jesus. The Apostle Paul calls it the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. What dollar figure would you put on knowing Christ? If you're a Christian, what dollar figure would you put on it? That I would trade knowing Jesus for this much money. It's incalculable. It's surpassing worth. And so understand there are real costs of discipleship. But the gain outweighs the cost. We get Jesus. We get Jesus. To live is Christ and to die is gain. To the non-Christian... In the room this morning, I want you to understand that Jesus in this passage, he makes it so clear for you. He really does. And that's a gift of grace. That he makes it so clear. You cannot have the world and Christ. And so learn it well from the word of God this morning. You have to renounce and follow him. You have to turn. You have to repent and follow Jesus. Now, the world tells you the exact opposite. You got voices all around you telling you things like this, that denying yourself uh, is a form of trauma. That's all, all those Christians that are telling you to deny yourself, that's a form of trauma. You're hurting, you know, your inner self by denying yourself. 
You're inhibiting the free expression of your personality. You're doing yourself damage by denying yourself. You need to fulfill yourself. And Jesus slides this nonsense to the side and he says, deny yourself and take up your cross. He, he really does. He says, turn. He says, repent. Deny yourself and take up your cross. The world says, follow your dreams. Follow your heart. Whatever's down in there, spend your whole life pursuing your own agendas. Follow your heart. Jesus says, follow me. That's what it means to truly live. Not to pursue your own desires and to follow your own desires. What's truly life, what you were made for, is to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. And you'll never be happier. You were made for him. You were made for him. All things were made for Christ. And so I want to exhort you today to follow Jesus. To follow him. No one has ever loved you like Jesus and no one else came to save you. The Bible says that his name is the only name given under heaven through which we can be forgiven of our sins. Two warnings. If that's you this morning, don't be hasty about it. Don't be hasty about it. Understand what it means to become a Christian. There's a reason why, Lord willing, you will never see at this church. Who wants to become a Christian? Every eye closed, every head bowed. Close your eyes, pray the prayer, and repeat after me. And by the way, we're going to have some you know, uh, piano music. And if you're feeling you know, emotional right now, come to the front and talk to, the, talk to this pastor or talk to this person. How about count the cost? And understand what it means to follow Jesus as Lord. Don't be hasty about it. And the second warning is this. Don't be hesitant. Don't fall into this one day way of thinking of, man, I know I need to be a Christian. I know I need to do that. And one day I'm going to do it. One day. I don't think we can count how many souls that the devil has drug into hell with that myth, that, that way of thinking. I'll get right with God one day. I'll follow Jesus one day. Why not today? What's wrong with today? The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. And really the question is this. If Jesus is Lord, then follow him. If he's Lord, then follow him. With all your heart and to the end of your days. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your faithfulness to build up your church. God, we thank you for your perfect record of steadfast love and mercy. And we pray, Lord, that you would do us good today. As we gather in your presence, as we sing your praise, as we call on your name, as we hear your word, strengthen us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.